while I realize that you are all of such a spiritual caliber that if, in fact, I were going to preach for two hours, you would all sit here listening intently, learning from the Word of God and loving God. I know that's exactly how you would feel. Do not worry. I am not going to be preaching for two hours this morning. However, I do have a lot that I want to say, and we're going to take a brief amount of time to say it, but because of that, I'm going to do something a little bit differently than I normally do. For the sake of time, to help us move a little bit quicker, I am going to be putting most of the scriptures we're studying this morning up on the screen. That's not my normal habit, but we're going to do that this morning to help us move a little bit quicker through what we want to learn today about God's redemption plan. When we take a look at Jesus' life and we come to the end of it after he's died and then resurrected and he spends some time with his disciples, about 40 days, we take a look at the end of the book of Mark in chapter 16. And from about verse 15 to about verse 18, I think we see Mark's summary of Jesus' message to the disciples during that 40-day period. It's his final word. And so as we consider that final nature of those words, I think we recognize this has got to be important. If, if Jesus is saying this as some of the very last things that he's ever going to say in person to his disciples, it just stands to reason this must be some of the most important stuff that his disciples need to hear. And so we find in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 that Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. What an amazing statement. One of the most important things that Jesus wanted to pass on to his disciples was that they needed to go into the world and preach the gospel. Why? Why is that so important? I think Paul helps us understand in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Suddenly we recognize why it is so important for Jesus as one of the last things that he ever says, get the gospel, take it out to the world, and let everybody hear about it because it is by the means of the gospel that people are going to be saved. That's where the power of salvation is. The power of salvation is no place else but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we recognize further the importance in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where Paul there talks about judgment that's coming. He says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. The gospel message is one that we must obey. And in the end, the gospel is going to save some, and for those who did not obey it and did not heed its message, it is going to be the reason for judgment and retribution from God. And those who do not know God, those who do not obey His gospel, will suffer eternal punishment away from the presence of God. The text goes on to point out. I think we can see from these verses, the gospel is absolutely important. It is of utmost importance. And at this point, it seems kind of simple. We need the gospel. The gospel saves. We'll just get out there and we'll teach that gospel message and everything will be okay. But as with everything, Satan gets his grubby little hands on it and starts to mess things up just a little bit. In fact, we recognize this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him for a different gospel. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. 
You see, Satan is going to get out different Gospels. There are a couple of lessons that we learn from this. Five lessons, in fact, that I'd like for us to learn from Galatians 1, verse 6 through 9. The first lesson is that different Gospels are taught. I understand the sense in which I'm saying that. There are different messages that Satan has originated through men in order to try to tell people that here is the hope that you can be saved. There are different messages out there. The second thing we learn from it, because it said that even if we or an angel preach it, that sometimes people of seeming authority are going to teach different Gospels. There are going to be people who have been to seminary. There are going to be people who have been priests and pastors and preachers and, and folks that we highly respect, those of seeming authority that are going to teach these other Gospels. It also points out, as he's writing to the Galatians, I mean, do you think the Galatians were sincere people? Do you think the Galatians said, you know what, we don't care about God. We'll just follow any old message. No. But they had turned aside to different Gospels. Good, sincere people who wanted to serve the Lord. What do we learn from Galatians 1, 6, 9? Not only do people of seeming authority teach different messages as Gospels, some people who are sincere and otherwise good follow different Gospels. However... There's only one gospel that's truly the gospel. There is only one gospel that truly saves. And it's our responsibility to learn that. It is not the preacher's responsibility to make sure that we all know it. It is not the elder's responsibility to make sure that we all know it. It is our responsibility individually to get into the Word of God to learn what the gospel message of Jesus Christ is because only one gospel message saves. And we need to discover that one. And we need to obey that one. Because it's that gospel message that has the power of salvation. It is that gospel that if we avoid, will cause our demise and destruction. How are we going to find this gospel? Paul in Galatians 3 and verse 24, I think, provides us with a hint. He says, therefore, the law. And when he says the law, he's referring back to the Old Testament Scriptures that the Jews had used as their canon. He said, therefore, the law has become, excuse me, has become our tutor or schoolmaster or guardian, some translations say, to lead us to Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith. I want you to envision this, kind of a picture of this. It says that you have the law, and it's a tutor that brings us to Jesus, and the reason that it's doing that is so that we might be justified. That is, that we might be declared innocent, that our sins might be removed, and as we stand before God, we will be holy and blameless. So Paul tells us, you know what, we can actually go back to the law. And when we look at the law, it's going to bring us to Jesus. So this morning, what I want us to do is let's just take a look at the law and see what it says, preparing and leading us to Jesus Christ so that we might know the gospel message of salvation, that through it we might be redeemed, justified, and saved. Before we do that, would you bow with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are humbled in your presence. We are amazed because we have sinned so greatly. We've turned our backs on you. We've We've essentially spit in your face, blaspheming your name and disobeying your covenant. And yet, despite that, you have provided a plan to save us, to remove those sins from our record and to remove sin from our life and to allow us to be in your presence eternally. We are so utterly grateful for the plan of your Son and the salvation that's offered through Him. And we pray that your hand of mercy and benevolence will be with us here this morning. We love you, Father, and we desire that you help us to understand your Word Please help us to 
to take a look at what you have revealed throughout the ages so that we might understand your gospel message of salvation, that we will not be distracted by the messages that are proclaimed in the world, even by those of seeming authority and even by those who are sincere. Father, we pray that you help us not to be blinded by the doctrines of men, but to open our hearts to your word and understand your gospel so that we might be saved and that we might glorify you eternally. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. When we take a look at what the law says, I think it's important for us to notice the very first thing the law said. It begins with these words, In the beginning, God. It stands to reason that if we want to understand God's message of salvation, that we have to begin right here. What do we know about this God? And of course, we, we could spend entire lessons talking about the God of the Bible. We could talk about His omnipotence. We could talk about His omnipresence. We could talk about His omniscience. But there's really one characteristic that I think we need to notice first and foremost as pertains to our lesson today. And that is God's holiness. God is utterly holy. In Him is light and there is no darkness. I'm not sure that we can fathom the absolute holiness of God. Because that clear and absolute and utter holiness is foreign in our lives. We've not seen anyone like that. Except by the eyes of faith looking at God. Notice what it says in Psalm 5 and verse 4. You're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Evil is not allowed to dwell with the Father. Evil is not allowed to be in fellowship with the Father. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 says, you cannot look on wickedness. Do you understand what this is saying? You do not look on wickedness. God turns His face from evil and from sin. That is how holy and how righteous our God is. I want you to notice this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, when God created man and woman, listen to this. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. What is the implication of this? Here is the holy God. He is creating man and woman in his image. The implication is that God has created us in such a way that we are to have fellowship with Him. That, that's what He was creating. Creatures that could be in fellowship with Him. Creatures that were in His image. Creatures that in some way, and we're not going to get into that this morning, but just in some way, are similar to Him who can have fellowship with Him. But through the law, we also recognize the standard of fellowship. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45, it says, Be holy, for I am holy. It says it twice. In fact, throughout the book of Leviticus, we see this statement made over and over and over again. God has created us in His image so that we might be in fellowship with Him, but there is a standard. We don't just get to be in fellowship with Him willy-nilly, no matter what. Rather, we are in fellowship with Him when we are holy as He is holy. And so, as a matter of maintaining holiness, God gave to Adam and Eve a law. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, He said, From the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. 
The standard of fellowship with God is holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. And from the very beginning, He established law so that man could have holiness, obeying the law, and therefore have fellowship with God. But we had a problem. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. I want you to get the picture in your mind. We have an utterly holy, absolutely righteous God. And the standard of fellowship with, his, with Him from His creatures who have been created in His image is that we are to be holy as He is holy. He established the law. And while they followed that law, they were holy as God is holy. But they fell. They sinned. And the holiness with which man was created was lost in Adam and Eve. And what's worse is as we continue on, we find in Psalm 14, 1-3, that everyone who came out of Adam and Eve followed in their sinful footsteps. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. They have all turned aside. There is no one who does good. Not even one. In fact, Paul in Romans 3 quoted this passage as he led to the conclusion that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 3, 23. Everyone has followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. God created us to be holy. He created us in His image so that being holy we could be in fellowship with Him. And yet every single one of us have fallen from that state of holiness, severing the fellowship with God. Remember what it said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This passage has caused a lot of problems and confusion for a lot of people that want to serve the Lord. Because they take a look at Adam and Eve and they say, well, wait, wait a minute. Here Adam and Eve were told that they were going to die, but they lived. You see, the reality is here, and we learn as we read through the entire Bible, that God was not really talking about physical death when He said this. Rather, He was talking about Spiritual death. Physical death is when the soul has been separated from the body. Spiritual death is when our fellowship has been severed from the Father. When our soul has been separated from our Father who is spirit. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. That is death. Spiritual death. And that is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. You know, read today's article in the bulletin. What did Adam do when God came into the garden? Here was, here was God with whom he had, had fellowship, and he ate, the tree, ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and... The father comes back into the garden in order to have fellowship with Adam. And what does Adam do? He hides. Because you see, a separation had come between him and the father. A spiritual death. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul calls it dead in sin and transgression. And that is exactly what happened immediately. Immediately. 
Because our God is a holy God that cannot look on sin. But there are a couple of other characteristics about God that come into play here. Because if we stop right there, that seems pretty hopeless. We've all blown it. It's lost. We've all fallen from God's holiness. We've all fallen from God's glory. We've all been severed from Christ. We've all died spiritually. And if the only characteristic of God that matters is His holiness, we're in trouble. But that's not the only characteristic of God. Here in Psalm 89 and verse 14, the Scripture says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Notice the two that are highlighted. Those are the two characteristics that we need to recognize. God's justice and God's love. Both of those come together to help us out. But how? We think about God's justice we recognize in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. He said, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This is God's justice. Giving to one what is deserved. When we sin, we deserve death. In fact, he goes on in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 and verse 20 to say, the soul who sins will die. The person who sins will die. That's God's justice. Because we have sinned, a penalty must be meted out. We must endure it. And death is the penalty. The problem is, here's the problem. Once we've meted out the penalty, the penalty is death. There's nothing after that for us. Death, separation utterly from God. But we also learn of God's love. Because you see later in Ezekiel 18 and then on in Ezekiel 33, he says, But as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. You see, God has His justice that demands penalty, that demands death. But He has His love that doesn't want our death. His loving kindness wants us to live. How can His justice and His love come together? How can both of those coexist so that we can have a relationship with God? Well, God came up with a plan. And that plan was sacrifice. Whereby God's justice is meted out because blood is shed, death occurs, and yet His loving kindness is demonstrated because through the sacrificial death, Our sins are atoned and covered and paid for so that in His loving kindness, we don't have to die. We can live. Sacrifice has long been a part of God's plan. We know for certain all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where Cain and Abel, remember, offered sacrifices to God and Abel's was more pleasing. Some would suggest that even back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, and if you want to turn there, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. I'm not as certain about this, but some suggest that in Genesis 3.21, after Adam and Eve sinned, and there were garments or coverings of animal skin made for them, that word for cover is the same word used for atone. And so some suggest that this was a sacrifice that God had offered, and the covering of the skins was the symbolism. So it's possibly that sacrifice goes all the way back to there. But I'll tell you what, with the Israelites... We know that sacrifice was important because in Exodus chapter 24, verses 4 through 8, Exodus 24, beginning at verse 4, it says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The covenant that the children of Israel made with God was ratified by blood. In fact, so important was blood throughout the entire Old Testament that as the Hebrew writer commented on the sacrificial system in Hebrews 9 and verse 22, he said, Without blood it is impossible to forgive sins. That is how important sacrifice and blood work. And if we look in Numbers chapter 28 and 29, and we're not going to read both of those chapters today, but I encourage you to read it sometime. We find out that the children of Israel, through their priests, they had to offer two sacrifices every day. On every Sabbath, they had to offer two more sacrifices. At the beginning of every month, they had to offer something like ten bulls and seven rams and so many goats and so many sheep over and over again. And then throughout the feast days that they had, they offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. In fact, if you go through and count the sacrifices in this chapter, in a year, they offered 1,251 sacrifices. And that doesn't count the free will and the votive offerings that individuals have just come and offer. These are the prescribed sacrifices. 1,251 every year. Can you imagine if you lived in Jerusalem near the temple what it must have been like? The squeal of the animals that are being slaughtered. The stench of blood and raw meat. The smell of burning flesh at the altar. Can you imagine this picture that God has presented to us? And then can you imagine as an Israelite having to go there, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, three times a year to see the blood sacrifice over and over and over and over again. How amazing that is. Here's why it works. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, God said, here's why it works. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Remember, what's the penalty? Death. What does justice demand? Death. He says, life is in the blood. Justice demands that life be given up. In Leviticus 16 and verse 30, he says, talking about the Day of Atonement, which was the tenth day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, he says, it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. God offered this plan of sacrifice to atone. And on that Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 7 through 10, and verse 15 through 22, he provides a picture of what is happening here symbolically. If you would, look in Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to read these verses. Leviticus 16, beginning at verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats, and I know, yes, that my picture is a lamb. That's what I found. But it's two goats. He shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And then drop down to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. 
Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, by means of these two goats, God has demonstrated a word picture, an object lesson for us, of what sacrifice does for our sins. First of all, we have the scapegoat. And what we see there is that the sins of the people, as, as Aaron comes in and lays his hands on it and confesses his sins over there, remember, he's wearing that ephod that has the stones with the names of the tribes of Israel. It's as though the entire people of Israel, he's representing them, laying their sins on the scapegoat. And then that sin is taken away off into the wilderness. But there's the other goat that accomplishes another part of the plan. That goat dies. And his death is passed over to the sinners. You see, don't you just love that picture? I wish I'd come up with that on my own. I'd borrow that from someone else. But you see what happens? The sin is transferred from the sinner over to the sacrifice. And the sins are taken away. The death of the sacrifice is transferred to the person. And he is atoned and covered and forgiven. By means of this plan, God's justice and his love come together to allow for salvation. As we consider the sacrifice, there's four things that we need to note. Number one, the sacrifice was sinless. Of course, these animals were amoral. They didn't sin. And so he pointed out that they had to be spotless. As a symbolic representation of the fact that they were sinless, not only was their soul unmarred, their bodies were to be unmarred. But, but now as we consider the important part here, action was taken. I want you to understand this. It was not enough to just believe in the system of sacrifice. It was not enough to just say, I believe that if I sacrificed, I would be forgiven. They actually had to kill the animal. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But even though action had to be taken... I want you to recognize grace was given. They did not merit grace. There's no number of animals that they could kill that would cause them to earn salvation and atonement from their sins, but they had to kill them anyway. But when they were done killing the animal, do you think that that Israelite had earned salvation? Did God suddenly owe him because he had slaughtered a sheep or a goat or a bull that suddenly now God in heaven says, well, Okay, let me give to them their wages of salvation. Of course not. All the way along. This idea that God was somehow different in the Old Testament than He is now, all the way along, God has been a God of grace and loving kindness. But now we need to recognize there's a problem. Look in Hebrews chapter 10. The Hebrew writer, as he looks back, 
And the careful student, without even looking at what the Hebrew writer says, should realize this just from reading the Old Testament. But we've got a problem here. Notice what it says in Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect, excuse me, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, we have a problem. Here's this entire picture that God has established, but when we just get right down to the heart of it, we realize that ultimately and truly it doesn't really work. See, a couple of things. First of all, it's an animal, not a man. Apples and oranges. The penalty is that... We've got to die. And killing a sheep is not the same as a man dying. They had no fellowship with God. And you see, that's the real point. That's the real death that is offered. The fact is, if the death that was demanded of us was physical death, then all we'd have to do is all wait till we die. Then we'd be redeemed by that sacrifice. But that's not the way it works because you see, that physical death is not the real penalty. The real penalty is the severance of the fellowship with God. It's physical, not spiritual death. The offerer needed atonement. We read that in Leviticus 16. As Aaron had to, and all the high priests had to offer atonement for themselves, as well as the altar, as well as the temple, before they could ever even remotely begin to offer atonement for everyone else. And finally, it had to be repeated. If it had really worked, it would have just been done. And so now we wonder, well, wait a minute. If it wasn't really working, why did, I mean, 1,251 sacrifices a year, not to mention free will and votive offerings, why did God come up with this if it's not really working? I'll tell you why. Because it was a generational word picture, object lesson of what really would work. A tutor, a schoolmaster to lead us to what really would work. Because the careful student of the law is going to get into Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, they're going to learn that God is preparing a sacrifice that really does work. And that all the sacrifices that Israel was offering was merely a shadow to look forward to the true sacrifice that would work. In Isaiah 53, we see things like, Behold, my servant, our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Did you catch that? Like a what? Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like those sacrifices that you've been offering year after year after year. He is cut off. For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, he had done no violence. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will bear their iniquities. God is promising a sacrifice is coming that is going to work. My servant is going to come into the world and he will be the lamb that is offered to sacrifice for your sins, to atone for them in reality. Now, brethren, I just want you to stop and think for just a moment. Imagine what it would be like to grow up as a Jew 
at the beginning of the first century. Three times a year, you're traveling to Jerusalem to participate in the feasts. You're smelling the stench of blood. You're hearing the squeal of dying animals. And over and over again, you're taught all your life, that's for our sins. That's to take our sin. That's to take our sin. That lamb there, son, we've got to separate this lamb off. I know you like this lamb, but we've got to separate that lamb off because this is the lamb that is going to take away our sins and we're going to have to kill it. And then one day, you hear about a man named John who is out teaching. And he's talking about the Messiah that's going to come. And, and you've listened to him and you've believed him and you're following along with him. And one day, you're in the road and you see his cousin coming up the road and John stops you. He grabs you by the arm and he says, look at him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything that the law said, everything that it had about sacrifice, everything that it taught us about the bloodletting and the atonement was preparing for this moment. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. A schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus Christ who died so that our sins could be taken away. Consider what the Bible says in the New Testament about the sacrifice of Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19, he said, knowing that you were redeemed, that is purchased, bought back, redeemed how? With blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless to the blood of Christ. Well, it takes blood. The life is in the blood. Jesus shed His blood as a demonstration of that life that we were seeing as we're purchased back. In Matthew 20 and 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He, what did He give? His life as a ransom, a purchase price to save us from our sins. Matthew 26, 28, as He's talking about the Lord's Supper there, He says, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Blood, forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Remember, Hebrews is the writer that told us that those old sacrifices didn't work. And he pointed to this sacrifice. He said, not through the blood of goats and calves. Why? Because that didn't work. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I just want you to think, as we consider these next coming passages, what actually happened. What God is saying happened in this sacrifice. Here's what happened to Jesus in this sacrifice. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we who know a lot of sin and don't know righteousness can be righteous. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, He, that's Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. That's a direct reference back to Isaiah 53. In Matthew 27 verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting here from the psalm that we read just moments ago. And as he says this, I think he's indicating not only the deliverance that's going to come, as the psalm demonstrates, but also what's happening right now between him and the Father. Because remember, the Father can't look on sin. No sin can dwell with the Father. And Jesus has now, who, who knew no sin, has been made to be sin. And the sun is blotted out from the sky and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because Jesus didn't understand. Not because Jesus didn't know what was coming. But because Jesus understood what was happening right now. As He was separated from the Father. Enduring the penalty that we were to undergo. 2 Corinthians 5.14, notice what it says. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Does this picture look a little bit familiar here? These passages that we've read said that our sins were on Jesus' body. And now this passage that we've got on the screen now says that His death means we died. Do you see what's happening? Our sins transferred to the sinless. His death transferred to give us life. What an amazing message. Let's let's, let's see that again. Our sins transferred to the sinless. His death transferred so that we can have life. That, brethren, is the gospel message of salvation. But we recall what it said in 2 Thessalonians, where it talks about obeying the gospel. And so we just need to ask for a moment, how, how does that happen? Here's the message of the gospel. Our sins can be transferred to Jesus so that His death can be transferred to us, but we're supposed to obey something in that message. We don't just sit back and say, oh, it's wonderful, that happened, we're all good. It said, obey that gospel. Now, let's look at some passages. 2 Timothy 2.11 If we died with Him, we will live with Him. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20, verse, chapter 3 and verse 3 If you have died with Christ, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We've got to die with Christ. Galatians 2.20 said, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. This is the, this is the message. We've got to die with Christ. We've got to be crucified with Christ. And so we have a question. When? When does that happen? When do we die with Christ? When are we crucified with Christ? When do we begin to live with Christ? Romans chapter 6 provides the answer. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? The text goes on and later says, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so we too might walk in newness of life. We have become united in the likeness of His death. Our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. He who has died is freed from sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in the sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get this? These are the questions that we were asking. When do these things happen? Well, it says when we're baptized into His death, 
See that? Into his death, then we get life. We get crucified with him there. At that point, we're freed from sin. Why? Because we were obedient. Remember, we're obeying this gospel message, and then we're freed from sin, and we receive the eternal gift, the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When did that happen? Romans 6 started off. When we were baptized into his, into his death. When we're baptized into Christ Jesus. Do you get the picture that Paul is pointing out here? Baptism is not just a symbol. Baptism is not just something that shows everybody else something that's already happened. Baptism is when it happens. Baptism is when we die with Christ. Baptism is when we are crucified with Christ. Baptism is when we are set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And at no other time. But only, only when that's why we're being baptized. And it brings us full circle. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, remember how he started? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Why? Because it's the power of God that saves. Notice how he finished. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I know a lot of folks want to focus in on this part. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. All that just says, if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. That's right. And let me just tell you, if you want to be condemned, focus on this half of the verse. But if you want to be saved, focus on the part of the verse that tells us how to be saved. Because baptism, based on faith and our desire to turn from our sins, that is when we die with Christ. That is the gospel message that saves the only one 